This week's Institute of Ideas podcast from our Battle of Ideas archive is called Chewing the Facts, What's the Truth of the Obesity Crisis? and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2013. The chair is Jason Smith. Hello everyone. So this session, Chewing the Facts, What's the Truth about the Obesity Crisis, is, uh, is, is in association with um, SPIKED. Department of Health says that 61.3% of adults and 30% of children are overweight or obese. Um, not only does this cost the NHS a bomb, it's also, we're told, storing up untold problems for the future. At the same time, the obesity time bomb ticks away. Other reports from the British Heart Foundation and the Department of Public Health at Oxford uh, uh, paint a, a slightly different picture. So there's uh, apparently been an unprecedented reduction in deaths from cardiovascular disease in the UK. Life expectancy continues to rise for both men and women. And uh, type 2 diabetes seems to be a problem only for certain ethnic groups. We've also got organisations like Oxfam and the International Red Cross increasingly worried about the enormous, uh, what they're calling destitution, hardship and hunger facing people in the UK. And there are now 400 food banks uh, tackling what's uh, considered to be Britain's food poverty. So on the one hand, we're all dying uh, and are unhealthy because we're too fat. On the other hand, we're all living longer and healthier lives than ever. On uh, yet another hand, we're, um, we're all starving. So it's uh, quite a confusing picture, I think you'll agree. We have an hour to sort this out. So just to introduce our speakers, uh, in the order in which they're going to speak, uh, Jane Ogden on uh, my left is Professor of Health Psychology at the University of Surrey, where she teaches medical, nutrition, dietitian and psychology students. Her main research areas are the control of eating, eating behaviour, parenting and the medical and surgical management of obesity. Her new book, The Good Parenting Food Guide, is out early next year. Next to her is Henry, Henry Dimbleby. Uh, Henry started his working life as a commie chef, as did I. Um, and before he uh, and then joined the uh, Daily Telegraph, he then worked for a management consultancy firm where he met John Vincent and they founded the Leon restaurants chain together. He's co-author of the recent uh, school food plan. Uh, Angelica, Angelica Michaelis on my right is a senior lecturer at the Department of English at Manchester Met University. Her research focuses on the meaning of food and how our identity is intertwined with how we regulate what we eat. She's currently working on a monograph entitled Eating Theory, The Theory of Eating. Great title. <laughs> uh, Rob Lyons next to me is Associate Editor of Spiked and writes on science and risk. He's the author of Panic on a Plate, How Society Developed an Eating Disorder, and he blogs about food-related debates at paniconeplate.com. Uh, so, Jane, if you'd like to um, kick us off. Okay, I'm a professor in health psychology, and it seems extremely clear to me that, as a psychologist, the main cause of obesity is clearly psychological. Now, this doesn't mean that people who are obese have eating disorders or are depressed or an anxious, although some of them do. It's because, at its very basic, obesity is caused by eating more than the body needs and doing less than the body should be doing. And these two very simple behaviours, eating and exercise or activity, are related to a whole load of psychological factors. 
our beliefs, our emotions, the learning that we've had from childhood, the habits we've developed, the peers that we surround ourselves with, the social world that we live in, and our parents. And all of these psychological factors then determine what we eat, how much we eat, and whether we do enough exercise or not. And just to give you a little example, anecdote though it is, I was sitting in Pizza Express a few months ago, having pizzas with my children, and on the table next to me was a woman with her little girl, about three years old. And I guess the, the, the trick is never to sit next to a psychologist when you're having lunch with your children because <laughs> they stare at you and take notes. The mother and her little girl were having a wonderful time sharing a huge ice cream out of a big glass with a spoon each. And the mother said lots of things, including, you have been a good girl today, you've eaten all your pizza, well done, isn't this lovely, this tastes wonderful, aren't you nice, and isn't this nice being out together? She then said, if you finish it, then you can go in the buggy and you don't have to walk into town. (laughs) And this annoying psychologist sitting next to her, i.e. me, thought, in that two-minute conversation that I was watching, that little girl had learnt that ice cream was a treat, that it was a fantastic way to bond with your mother or someone that you care about. It was emotionally charged because they were obviously having a lovely time together and there's nothing wrong with that. And also she learnt that walking is boring and riding in the buggy is the way forward. And if you traject that into the future, into that little girl's life, then it's not really surprising that when she's upset or fed up or needing a treat or wanting to emotionally bond with somebody, she will then turn to food, like ice cream. And when she's feeling tired or fed up, rather than walking, she'll get into the adult version of a buggy, i.e. the car. So to me, obesity is so clearly a psychological problem. And those out there who believe that it's genetic, my answer always is that although there's a bit of genetics involved in it, there's no way that obesity can be caused by genetics because we know that as soon as one person moves from one country to another, their weight increases or decreases according to that country that they're living in. And their genes do not change. My students talk about the Heathrow Stone. When they arrive in England from New Zealand or Australia or from Greece, they gain about a stone in weight. They call it the Heathrow Stone. Now, their genes do not change when they pass through Heathrow. And secondly, obesity cannot be an addiction to sugar, which we've been hearing about recently in the press, because people do not eat sugar. Nobody opens the cupboard, gets the sugar out and eats it. They eat the psychological, social version of sugar known as cake, or, depending on where you live, deep-fried Mars bars. So it's not genetic, it's not about neurochemical addiction, it's about psychology. So if psychology is really important in the cause of obesity, then what about the solutions? Are they also psychological? Well, there's two factors that we have to address. One is the treatment of obesity, and the second is the prevention of obesity. In terms of the treatment of obesity, for those who are already obese, ideally, we would also treat their psychology. We would change their beliefs and their behaviours, and we would change their habits, and we'd deal with their emotions. But what we know from the evidence is that this is extremely hard to do. It is very hard to change the kind of habits that have been entrenched since childhood. So in terms of treating obesity, what we need to do is target the individual a bit, but also we need to target society. At the moment, we live in a world where it's very, very easy to become fat, to overeat and to under-exercise. And we need to change the way that society is structured. We need to tackle the food industry. We need to tackle their advertising 
we need to get in touch with town planners and make sure that we have pavements and street lighting so that people can be more mobile. And at the end of the day, we probably do need to use surgery to treat those people who are very overweight because trying to change their beliefs and their behaviour is so very difficult. Then, in terms of prevention, what do we do? For our society, prevention has to be the main focus. It's difficult being obese in the here and now, but there are generations upon generations of people who are destined to be obese in the future. So we need to tackle the prevention of obesity now for the sake of those future generations. And again, how do we do this? Well, first and foremost, we have to change society. We have to make it easier to be healthy, easier to eat well, and harder to overeat and to be inactive. But for those future generations, we also have a chance to change their psychology. It's not too late to tackle people's beliefs and behaviours and their habits and their emotions before they've become entrenched. And so I guess there are two ways to do this. First of all, we must not become a society who normalises obesity. We mustn't give in to the obesity epidemic and accept it as being okay or inevitable. Because once the people become more obese, then the future generations will become even more obese. And there's a very obvious domino effect that happens with obesity. The best predictor of how fat we are is actually the fatness of the people around us, are the fatness of our friends and our peer groups. So if we give in to it and we accept it and we see it as being inevitable, then the future generations don't stand a chance because it will simply cascade from one generation into the next. But secondly, we have to change the psychology of the future generations by tackling schools, which I've just realised, I've written an article about this person on my left here, though I never met him before. Uh, we have to tackle schools and school dinners and we have to use teachers as good role models and we have to manage the way that children eat in schools. We have to tackle parents, and I know that parents are always being blamed for everything, and I am a parent, and I therefore will be blamed myself. But we have to tackle parents to be good role models, to speak properly to their children about food and activity, and to manage their own microenvironments by changing what they bring into the, into the house. We have to tackle the TV and the media, and we have to tackle social media to make sure that it's easy for children now to develop healthy attitudes towards foods, so that in the future they don't overeat and under-exercise. So I guess my argument is that obesity is clearly a psychological problem, and it's clearly caused by psychological factors. But it doesn't mean to say that solutions have to be at the level of the individual or psychological. I think in terms of treatment, we need social change. And I think in terms of prevention, then we can target individuals for individual change. But until society changes, it's very, very difficult to eat and behave in a way that means that you won't actually fulfil the inevitability of becoming an obese person. Thank you, Jane. Henry, I bet you don't sell deep-fried Mars bars, do you? I don't, no. No. Our species uh, is, in, is in rude health. Uh, we are stronger, taller, better looking uh, than we've ever been. Um, as uh, you intimated in your introduction, life expectancy, global life expectancy, is 69 years. Um, that was in, in, in 1900, it was 31. So we are living... Uh, an incredibly long time, we're very healthy, and actually if you look at the quality of life as well, as it's extended, um, I was sitting uh, with a, a doctor who's doing some research on this, and he was saying one of the, um, one of the odd things about uh, the extension of life is the really bad bit, the really horrible, painful, miserable bit of life, 
is still about seven years, which is what it was in 1900. So not only are we living long, we're actually living long, apparently, uh, with a decent quality of life. The evidence is also confused. Um, we, we all know, and I don't think there'd be anyone on this panel who would say that obesity as defined by BMI was the best measure of long-term health. You can be heavy uh, without being fat. You can be fat without being unfit. Uh, look at the England rugby team, everyone says. Every one of them obese. Um, it's also not an epidemic. Uh, you can't catch uh, fatness from the man standing next to you at the bus stop. Uh, and there's, there's, as far as I know anyway, um, and there is... Um, and there's quite a lot of evidence that it's slowing down, not accelerating, um, particularly in the States and in the UK. Also, the debate itself causes problems. So um, there is a stigma. And I've been to a lot of schools in the last year, um, probably 30 schools. There is a stigma about being fat, uh, which is reinforced by a lot of messages in schools about not wanting to be fat. Uh, that could cause problems with body image, anorexia. The, the, the food industry... Uh, responds by selling us things uh, to solve it, as if kind of food uh, which caused the problem could in some way solve the problem. And there's you know, good debate. A, a number of people believe that the whole, um, the whole uh, growth in the low-fat products was actually one of the causes or the accelerating factors of obesity because fat was taken out and replaced with sugar and all sorts of other, other junk. So shouldn't we just stop? The debate shouldn't we just say, look, um, let's let it, people eat what they want. Um, it's it's not worth talking about. We're healthy, and talking about it makes people miserable. And the answer is no. But we do need to be cleverer about how we deal with the problem. So why is the answer no? Well, first of all, there is the cost. Um, uh, it is incredibly expensive. Food food related diseases, not just obesity, but food related diseases. Uh, cost the NHS about 5.8 well, billion pounds a year. Um, and as I said, that's not just obesity. So, for example, type 2 diabetes, increasingly people with normal weight are presenting with type 2 diabetes. It would in in include those people as well. There's an argument that's made about that cost that actually, um, if you treat these people, they'll go on and there, there are things called good illnesses and bad illnesses. Basically, if you treat someone and they go on to live a longer life and cost more in the lifetime, there's an argument that's made occasionally that actually it's better for them just to get fat and die because they'll be cheaper. Um, they'll be cheaper for you in the long term. But it's quite looking into that's quite flimsy for obesity. But also, you could spend that money. Basically, the fact we're spending 5.8 million billion on people with food-related diseases literally means other people aren't getting drugs that they could have. There is a trade-off being made, and that money could be spent elsewhere. But the second reason that um, it is important is the quality of life. And I think that that stat about the seven years is misleading in terms of uh, what happens to someone who goes down that path of becoming obese. Um, as I said, I've been to about 30 primary schools in the last year. 10% of children uh, are obese when they arrive at primary school in reception, age four. I don't know if anyone has children here. It's almost impossible to get a child of four fat. Um, and yet 10% of people uh, arrive at school uh, obese. And when you look at them, particularly for children, and you watch their behaviours in school, and you see them unable to participate in the games 
that other children are playing in, unable to jump on the trampoline. You hear their parents uh, talking about uh, how they shouldn't do this and they shouldn't do that because they probably can't cope with it. And then by the time um, they leave primary school at 11, for each of those uh, children who arrived at primary school obese, there are two children leaving primary school obese. And by the way, obesity in a child, it is very hard to have the kind of macho Lawrence Valio-style physique that means that BMAI doesn't work uh, at a primary school. If you look at primary school children who have a BMI of over 30, they are really uncomfortably fat. Uh, it's an unpleasant stage to be in. So, and they will then, and the evidence shows that they will go on um, you know, being fat is a good indicator of uh, lifelong obesity. Uh, I don't know if anyone here has ever been to a, a, a type 2 diabetes clinic. They're pretty depressing, miserable places. So the expense and the quality of life means we do need a society to do something about this. But what do we do? No amount of, um, no amount of uh, posters on bus stops is going to change our behaviour as adults. Very, very difficult to change uh, adult behaviour, but we can change the behaviour of... Oh, sum up! <laughs> but we can, sum up, we can change the behaviour of children in schools. So um, if you introduce food to children in a non-medical way, if you, treat, treat, um, if you teach children that um, cooking was one of the, is one of the great creative outlets of human creativity. If you have teachers eating with the children in the school, eating good food, um, you can create a culture, a normalised food culture, that, that makes it not something to be feared or something that's dangerous or something that's going to make you fat, but just something that is uh, critical to the enjoyment uh, and health in life. And I'm delighted that that's already started. I'm delighted that the government, as part of the work we've done, have done a number of things, such as introducing cookery um, for every child under 14 uh, as compulsory and giving free school meals to all children the first three years of primary, meaning that everyone eats together. So it is beginning. School is the place to do it. Um, and do, by the way, go to your school of your child and check that food is good and that the atmosphere is good. And if it isn't, uh, give them a copy of the plan. They can do something about it self-help guide www.schoolfoodplan.com summed up thank you thank you henry um, angelica um thank you very much for these two uh, contributions which i think was um, um are very interesting and whilst i agree with most of um what has been said uh, there's something that kind of bothers me and that is um that we know, Jane, what you said, you know, there are reasons, you give us reasons why people overeat and, you know, the psychological ones and um, also kind of physiological ones, yeah, the calorie intake and uh, if, if we change the calorie intake and the way we move, you know, then, you know, it's actually a quite easy equation. And also what you said, you know, let's start at school, let's start... A, and I absolutely agree with it, but why doesn't it work? And that's the thing that bothers me, and that's why I would like to start from a slightly different point of view. And I want to start with a quotation. This is from the Medical Sciences um, Bulletin from, uh, it's, uh, from the 1990s. I can give you the, the, the correct bibliographical source. The pharmaceutical industry is finally waking up to the fact that obesity is a chronic medical condition that requires lifelong, and that's in italics, treatment. 
preferably with a pill, and that the market for such a pill is enormous. Now, that I find chilling, because what that tells us is that there is actually, in the same way as there's economic detriment in relation to obesity in an obese society, there's also something of an economic gain to be made with fatness. And um, therefore, I would say fat is, in more than one sense, a four-letter word. It's a four-letter word because, in a way, it alerts us to something that is not to be uh, resolved easily. It cannot be resolved easily. Whereas, you know, you can be addicted to cigarettes, you can be addicted to alcohol, you give up cigarettes, you give up alcohol, as hard as it might be, but we cannot give up eating. So one of the things we have to learn, and I think this is what Jane said and what I think is really interesting, is a way of how we relate to food and actually to find out what does food mean to us because food is not just nutrition. It isn't nutrition, it stands for something else. And as long as we do not invest as a society in helping people to find out why they eat and why they sometimes try to seek rescue in fatness, because fatness can also be a safety. It can make people safe, it can be a barrier to dealing with issues in the world. And it's not the just purely psychological reasons, but it's the whole uh, way how economical, social, historical, and psychological, and physiological reasons all come together. So um, what, what is interesting is, for example, that while we nowadays would not make jokes about race, gender, uh, sexuality, gay people, or you make it, but, you know, as the coach of the English team has, uh, it gets very difficult. Um, and um, there are still jokes about fat people. We still make jokes about them. We still think they are really funny. There is still the idea of the fat man in the television program. And one of the reasons, I think, why we still do this is because we think that fat is something which we have control over. We can't control. It is preventable. So, in a way, when we laugh at these people, when we ridicule these people, then um, we don't think we make um, fun of a condition, but what we make fun of and what we um, criticise with this laughter as well is that these people are weak, they are lazy, and we are actually scared to become like them because it get, it's very easy to become fat. And I think part of our way we deal with obesity, and I would like to call it fatness, because fatness, obesity is already a slightly purged term because we use the medical term. But if I say, if I use the word fat, people are fat or you are fat, that is something that is very uncomfortable. And I think that fat people and fatness in our society represent something very uncomfortable. And when we look at fat people, they make us feel uncomfortable. They make us feel uncomfortable because it shows how easy we can transgress. It also, they make us angry because we think, who do you think you are to take up so much space in our society where we have less and less space. Yeah, you sit in the bus, you with your fat body. So there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of anxiety here, but it is true. And I think it says 
the way we care about um, fatness is, on the one hand, as Jane said, it is uh, a question of um, uh, physiological reasons, medical reasons, but I think we should take a hard look at ourselves and ask ourselves, why does it make us so anxious to be surrounded by fat people? Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Angelica. <clears throat> Rob? Well, as a, apparently the only... Uh, fat person in this room. <laughs> Makes me feel very anxious. Where's, the, where's this 25% of the population? Where, where are the rest of the fat... I'm here representing the... Uh, the, the, the <laughs> I'm here representing the Fat Liberation Front. Um, there aren't a lot of marches of the FLF, I have to say. Quite a lot of fundraising dinners, which is nice. Um, anyway... Uh, <laughs> Moving on, um, as we do, um, I, I, I actually what would chime with quite a lot of uh, what Henry was saying. I'm going to rip through a, a, a few points about uh, obesity. First of all, there's this, there's this claim, it's often made, it's, world, it's got the official backing of the World Health Organization and so on, that obesity is a disease. And I don't think that that's true at all. I think it's associated with some uh, chronic diseases like heart disease and type 2 diabetes in particular. But I think it's un unhelpful to describe it as a disease in and of itself. Um, you know, if we were going to classify body shapes that have an association with premature death as diseases, then being tall is, you know, it, it should be regarded as a disease. Um, you know, if, if we want to, you know, treat treat people who have a biological affliction that causes them uh, a pre premature death, then men should all have their testicles cut off. It's, it's, it's simple as that. It's, it's, there's a very strong association between having testicles and dying early. So we should, we should do something about it. Or, or we could just realise that, the, that a, the vast majority of people who are described as obese are not in any meaningful sense sick. And as Henry rightly said, you know, and as disease, it's not, if it's not a disease, it's not contagious either. I can't give Jason my obesity. Um, uh, nor is there an obesity time bomb. So we're frequently told that what's going to happen with obesity rates is they're just going to carry on going on up and up and up until eventually we're all obese. You know, by 2050 or something, 90% of us will be obese. There's absolutely no sign of that happening at all. Uh, obesity rates in the UK have plateaued just about around about 24, 25%. They've been there around that kind of figure for about a decade. And that's actually reflected across the globe that Places where people have got fat in the 80s and 90s, you know, uh, developed countries, uh, that, that, that uh, rise in obesity rates is, has slowed down. For children under 16 in the UK, uh, actually, if anything, obesity rates are going down. I mean, it's, it's always a bit too early to tell, but um, they seem to have peaked in about 2004 and gone down a bit since then. Uh, fourthly, obesity is not the same as morbid obesity. So most people who meet the defini de definition of obesity, this body mass index over 30, uh, are merely chubby. So what I will reveal, but my body mass index is about 32. Um, so I'm well into the, the, the range of obesity. Um, a small proportion of, of the UK population is morbidly obese. That's having a BMI of over 40. Um, uh, just two or three percent of the, these people. Yet, whenever they talk about obesity on TV, you will see um, they'll say twenty-five percent of the population is obese. Then they will cut to a picture of somebody with their fa face chopped off or their face pixelated, who is morbidly obese, when they only actually reflect about two or three percent of the population. Even America, which is the, apparently the epicenter of of the obesity epidemic, uh, only about five or six percent of people 
are morbidly obese. And again, that's you know the, the overall obesity statistics in America, even there, have uh, plateaued as well. Um, type two diabetes is regularly um, discussed as a, as a, you know, a, a problem that's going to arise from that. But as, as Henry alluded to. Um, in fact, it's not simply an obesity disease. People who are obese t- seem to have a greater, greater likelihood of getting type 2 diabetes. But in, in reality, about the same number of people have got type 2 diabetes in this country who are not obese as those who are obese. Uh, you're more likely to get it if you're obese, but there's far fewer of you. Um, and the other thing about uh, obesity is trying to treat it in the same way as... Um, uh, other kind of public health problems that we've had in the past, like smoking, isn't very useful. With uh, with uh, with obesity, actually, the diseases that are related to obesity are relatively treatable, um, and uh, and our, our treatment of, for example, type two diabetes is getting better all the time. Lung cancer, on the other hand, and we talk about smoking. Lung cancer kills about six of smokers. Ninety five percent of people who get lung cancer die. So uh, it's a it's quite a different kind of kettle of fish in terms of how worried we should be about it. Equally, while there's, there's reasonably good treatments for, for obesity-related diseases and they're getting better, there's actually no good treatment, I don't think, for obesity. So the advice in general is eat less, move more, and, and you will lose weight. And that does work temporarily. But most people who do that, who go on a diet, will put the weight back on um, over the course of two or three years or however long. Um, and in the process, probably depress themselves greatly about their inability to to solve this problem. So I think that the obesity uh, problem is overstated. It's not it's not something that we, we should worry about in the way that, that that it's been presented. But I think the obesity epidemic is alive and well, and that's because I don't think it has very much to do with overweight people or health. I think in reality, it's the main way in which the medical profession, health campaigners, and politicians can persuade us to open up our lives to their intervention. Even if you don't think that your weight is a problem, think of the children. And I think that that's a a real serious problem. It really strikes me that when I read the work of obesity crusaders about these things, you very quickly start to to read a completely different message that's going on underneath it, whether it is, you know, especially people who start to go on about the obesogenic environment that will be, you know, it's not our fault that we're fat, it's all these mega corporations, it's the design of cities and whatever. I think that actually that is a thinly veiled political uh, agenda going on there that is, you know, against uh, big corporations, against people who are vaguely neoliberal. Um, and I, th- I think that that's not a particularly helpful. Uh, it's, it's just as bad in its own way as the idea that um, uh, obesity is a kind of moral weakness and we all need to kind of take responsibility for that. So I think we should just chill out about it. There's a small proportion of society who have a genuine problem with, with obesity it, it really gets in the way of their quality of life. But otherwise, the rest of us really should just, like, stop and enjoy our food. Thank you, Rob. We don't have long, so I want to come straight out to you, but you don't have to agree that it's a, a psychological or sociological problem. You can, um, you can argue it's genetic, if you like, but we'd like to hear from you anyway. So, a lady right at the back. Jane's introduction was, for me, a good example of why psychologists should play no role at all in social policy and have nothing to say about public life. It's incredible. I know it was an anecdote, but you've basically extrapolated the entire lifespan of this three-year-old based on the fact she had an ice cream with her mum in Pizza Express. And that strikes me as a perfect example of what's wrong with this discussion, which is we talk about, particularly with children, 
uh, in a very deterministic way about the diet they have. The idea that the three-year-old eating ice cream has her life mapped out for her is absolute nonsense. It's just ridiculous. Uh, and it's a really, really backward way to understand food and also what people are about. So um, I'm sorry, Jane, but I really hope you have no role at all in determining anything to do with public policy. It's really, really terrifying. This three-year-old, who knows what she may turn out to do and be, I, I'm, I will bet my life on it that ice cream is going to have absolutely no negative impact on her whatsoever. With regard to the point about food in schools, I understand that it's really important to introduce like, children to healthy eating and things like that but I find that's way too easy to go incredibly wrong like I'm in a sixth form and it's attached to a secondary school and you go into like the year eight classrooms there's 12 year old girls doing class diets one of them will go to the vending machine buy a chocolate bar she'll come back into her classroom and the girls will say no 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 you can't eat that you can't eat that we're trying to lose five pounds and that's disordered eating in itself and I think now that the mainstream sort of recognizes anorexia as like a real problem um, things like Thinspiration are dying down, and we've seen the rise of things like Fitspiration, which is where you'll see girls on things like Twitter, Tumblr, and they just feel like absolute crap if they like didn't go to the gym. They're stressing out about whether something fits their macros or something like that. And I also believe that's something to do with fat rather than being like just a physical description is a really negative term. Like apparently it makes people anxious and you're lazy and you can't come up to this room. And I just wonder, is it is it really that big of a deal like do we want people to be living long thin miserable lives or can they have a maybe marginally shorter life with really nice chocolate cake that's my question i wanted to um talk about um you know the the figures rob that you gave about the u.s because i live in brooklyn new york where we are on average about uh, about five pounds heavier than people that live in manhattan um, although, incidentally, it's uh, more unhealthy to be underweight than overweight, but that's, uh, that's not what I want to talk about. Um, and I think it's very interesting that over his 12 to 13 year span, our mayor, Mayor Bloomberg, has made it his, uh, almost his uh, um, you know, central mission to police what we eat under the guise of the fact that we're all, uh, we're all overweight um, and uh, obesity is a problem. And, um, you know, it's a drain on, on resources. But it's interesting when you look at the way that he does that. So, for example, he had this uh, big campaign against trans fats. And you may or may not know, you're more likely to eat trans fats before they were banned in a diner where you can eat relatively cheaply than if you go to a restaurant on the Upper East Side. Um, uh, you know, people don't like the idea of people eating burgers in McDonald's. Um, because evidently they're less healthy than the, you know, the burgers that you might eat on the Upper West Side. Um, and uh, the recent soda ban that, um, you know, the mayor tried to ban large bottles of soda, uh, you know, under the guise that you buy a large bottle of soda, you're going you're gonna to drink the whole bottle, and then you're going to get fat, but there was no ban on large bottles of, of wine, um, because presumably if you drink large bottles of wine... Oh um, well, uh, you either don't get fat or you've got some sort of, uh, you know, control. And I think that given, given the fact that the statistics contradict what people are saying about obesity, I think what's really going on here is the policing of our behaviour and the policing of the private sphere. Because it used to be um, your own private business, what you ate in your own home, and if you eat out, then still, you know, what you eat out, what you take in your lunchbox, um, you know, as a child for your lunch 
Whereas now it's increasingly the case that all of these things that used to be, um, you know, just a, a question that was taken for the private individual are now becoming part of something that the authorities feel that they should police. And there's this underlying assumption that ordinary people are so stupid um, and so uh, weak-willed and so ignorant that they don't realise that Diet Coke has got less calories than regular Coke, etc., etc., etc. And I think that's the danger. Um, that's the danger in this discussion. Uh, a few points I'd like to make. I, I think we're in danger of trivialising the situation here. I think some of the uh, statistics that people have tossed around, I'd like to see a bit more evidence around them. I think the issue about uh, the issue or the comment about you can't catch fatness, yes, that's fine and funny, but actually I support Jane's idea and I think there's enough research to show that uh, our weight is often reflected in the company that we keep. So there is an issue around that. I think one of the issues that hasn't come up particularly, except the la- I thought the lady ahead of me was about to say something about it, is about affordability of uh, healthy food. I think we're in real danger of trivialising the impact of type 2 diabetes. This is not just some little disease that you get, you take your insulin or your tablets and you're okay. These are diseases that have a horrendous effect and can lead to a very, very prolonged and painful death. I think part of the problem is the fact that we tend to um, compare one end of the spectrum to the other. When you see someone who is obese, like it was pointed out, is especially in the TV, it's someone who is morbidly obese. It's not someone who is, you know, just came into that category. It's always the extreme end. And then when you see people that are healthy, you always see people that are toned with the six-pack, they go to the gym five times a week. You don't see what I'd say are sort of normal people represented in the media and the idea that you can, you know, be healthy and have a BMI, but that is within a healthy range. But you won't have, like, this, you know, perfect, idealistic body shape per se you'll just you know you just won't necessarily be overweight and I also think we forget that you can be fat and fit fit but you can also be you know skinny and be extremely unhealthy thank you I'm, I'm still reeling from the woman here with the, the, the idea that they'll ban large bottles of wine <laughs> uh, Jane there was a, a question direct to you so would you like to start us off yes I'd like to defend the whole of my discipline uh, in 30 seconds if that's all right I guess what I was trying to say is that we eat for so many complicated reasons, not to do with our genetics and not to do with our biology, Uh, and we eat because of the ways in which we've learnt to create meanings and relationships with food right from the very, very beginning. And my anecdotal example is an example which is backed up by quite a lot of quite good evidence about how children and adults learn about the meaning of food from their friends, from their parents, from the ways it's presented to them. If you say to children, uh, eat your vegetables and you can have pudding, then we know that they go away preferring pudding to vegetables. Uh, If you say you have been good, you can have a biscuit, we know that they then go away using biscuits as a treat um, because food is created and the meaning of food and our relationship with food is created from the very moment that we come out. That doesn't mean to say that everyone then trajects into a future of having either eating disorders or obesity, but it does mean that people have a relationship with food which is not really about hunger. Um, And that's the problem which affects everybody, that food is never really about hunger and we don't stop eating when we're full. And because of that, we're then much more prone to develop an eating-related problem. And that's what psychology is. (laughs) Just two little things I think are interesting. The first is the nub of the debate about 
public policy versus private personal responsibility? And at what point is it acceptable for the state to butt their nose into the private decisions of the individuals? And clearly there is... Um, it's a question of judgment. And for the judgment that I think is the right one on this area is, first of all, uh, within schools, we can, through educating carefully, improve the lives of the children who go through those schools. And what else is a school for if it's not to give children enjoyable, fulfilled lives or try and help that? Uh, and, and secondly, I do think the cost uh, to the NHS is so large that if we can come up with an effective intervention, it is not necessarily a bad thing to do. In fact, it would be a good thing to do. Which brings me on to the second point, which is, uh, which was um, very eloquently put by the woman uh, in the glasses at the back, which is that it's a minefield, this area, and there are all sorts of potentially uh, disastrous, unintended reactions to any action. So, for example, this terrible kind of uh, diet club in a class at your school I mean it sounds horrific it can get very preachy uh, it can lead to food being medicalised um, which is something I'm very worried about food should be something about enjoyment but I don't think the fact that something can be done wrong or lead to um, negative outcomes if done wrong means that you shouldn't try and do it so I think you have to separate those two things first of all you have to say is it a big enough problem to warrant some kind of state action? I believe yes. Are there potential negative problems from, from treatments that you might, from approaches you might take? Yes, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try and do something about it. Angelica, if there's anything you'd like to come back yeah. on? Um, there are kind of several things. I mean, one which I, um, thing which I find quite interesting is that the discussion seems to move very often between these two extremes. Um, can we have long, thin, uh, miserable lives or short, fat lives with chocolate cakes? I think there is something uh, quite interesting that every time when we talk about food and when we talk about eating, we seem to think about extremes. We are either underweight or we are overweight. We are either happy or we are unhappy. And again, I think it's much more complex. Now, but one question I would, would, would ask, if all of you had the choice between some fairy godmother comes in, um, size 10 one, of course, um, and asks you, you can have a choice for your life. You can be your, a normal weight, yeah, a norm, whatever normal means here, but neither underweight nor overweight, or you can be fat. And this decision will be made. You don't have to do anything for it, but you make the choice. How many of us would say, I'll be fat? Because it isn't like that. It isn't this easy, as the lady said before, we all are in charge of our choices. We live in a society where many choices are made for us. For example, the choice about the large drinks. This is a choice made by multinational companies who want to make a lot of money out of our misery and out of our fatness. And that is something which we also should think about. Any kind of interference, when we think about state interference, we always seem to think about the nanny state. Well, do you know what? Nannies are not that bad sometimes. And sometimes, actually, I'm quite happy if somebody tells me, somebody with more expertise, what might be a good thing or a bad thing to do. That is not the case in every situation. But it seems to me very much a British and even more an American problem where the state is always, um, in a way, a 
the body in this occasion, where I think if you come from other countries, if you go, for example, to Scandinavia or other countries where the state actually has quite a strong saying in health issues, there are a lot of people who are neither fat nor thin and no completely happy and nor completely unhappy, but find a way of living. So maybe we should also try and think about solutions that are outside of our own cultural circle and think about outside the box. I mean, I'll just deal specifically with this one question for now about the, the, the figures and whether it's I'm, uh, I'm trivialising things. Um, the figures about the plateauing of uh, obesity rates come from the Health Survey for England, uh, from the Centers for Disease Control in the United States, and from research that's done comparative studies on uh, on obesity rates in developed countries. I mean, the obesity rates are going up in countries that don't at the moment have a particular obesity problem, but in the countries that have had it for a while, uh, it seems to be plateauing. <clears throat> uh, in terms of the social situation, yeah, uh, uh, it's true that, 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 that social, social factors uh, do play a part, so it's no accident that uh, just about the fattest group in society are the 20% richest men, uh, and just about the skinniest section of society are the 20% richest women. Um, because of the different social pressures that are going on there, um, so yeah, I mean, obviously. The, but but yeah, whether the, those twenty percent of uh, you know at the top of society among, among women are happy, you know, you know, constantly monitoring what they're eating so that to make sure that they stay slim and constantly always being a bit hungry, uh, I, I don't. I wouldn't say that that's a particularly happy situation to be in. In terms of type two diabetes, um, yes, there is a problem with type two diabetes if it's uncontrolled, if it's not detected, and um, there's some uh, particular work. I mean, I went to a, uh, an event a few years ago at um, the, the the Dana Centre, uh, the Science Museum, uh, specifically looking at ethnic minorities, where there is a real problem with um, un oh yeah, undetected uh, type two diabetes. And I think you know, the more specific work needs to be done on improving that side of things, but making a sweeping claim about the idea that we're all going to get type 2 diabetes because we're getting fat is very, very unhelpful. For example, it means that I, people will go, I'm not fat, therefore I won't have type 2 diabetes, and that's a, a very bad assumption to make. Thank you. OK, so there were a, a couple, of, um, <clears throat> couple of hands at the back. Yep, so you, yep. To um, uh, take uh, something that I think Henry said in estimating the cost to the NHS... Firstly, we should be kind of sceptical of those figures. Those types of studies tend to be cost of rather than um, a quite complex thing, calculating benefits. But let's say it's true. Now, that's a social cost. That is a negative externality. This is a rather simplistic solution to it, but if it were possible, all things being equal, you increase taxation on foods related that, uh, that make people obese, we cover the extra cost of the NHS, may even be running into a surplus. If that was the case, that there was no negative externality to the rest of us, would you and would we still be talking about obesity and people's weight? I think we would. And why is that? Clearly, the cost to the NHS is not a significant reason as to why we're discussing this. And I'm, I'm suspicious of the, 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 the maybe real reasons underlying why we're talking about this, it, because taxation can clearly cover the externality, and therefore, it's none of my business. It's not harming me if people are obese. There seem to be two slightly different questions going on here. Uh, one which is, do we have, you know, is obesity a big social problem? Uh, and the other one is, if it is, what do we do about it? But 
And I was thinking, well, perhaps we could try and separate them. But in reality, of course, it's very difficult to separate them because the evidence for obesity being a big widespread problem in society and the outcomes of it is not neutral. I mean, Rob was citing the fact that the people who are, you know, whose health is genuinely impacted by their weight are the people with a BMI of over 40, and they are 2 or 3% of society, and they have consistently been 2 or 3% for some time. And it's the people who are a bit overweight uh, who are increasing as a proportion of society, and there's some evidence that, that is better for you than being underweight. So if you, if you wanted to try and look at evidence objectively, it's actually quite hard to separate out those kind of things from the public health messages. And it makes you realise that the... It, when people say, oh, we, you know, we want the evidence and then we want to make policy, it's actually really difficult because the evidence is usually very tied up with wanting to change people's behaviour. And if you want to change people's behaviour and make them worry about their weight and their kids' weight and make them, uh, you know, put, be careful what they put in their kids' lunch boxes, then you have to convince them that this is a big problem and it's a big problem for the future and that they're being irresponsible parents if they don't pay attention to it. And in order to do that, you say, oh, you know, some massive percentage of society is obese, whereas actually, you know, the, the big problem is really a very small group of people. But then it becomes very difficult to actually sit and, and have a, a cool, sensible, grown-up discussion of how big the problem is. And I think this is actually something that's a widespread problem we talk about evidence-based policy, is that the evidence is often not something that is oh, well, let's, let's find out the facts and use that to inform things. It's often something that is wheeled out as a way of trying to change all of our behaviour uh, and, and not treating us like, like responsible adults and yeah, not treating us like people who can decide whether to buy a large soda or a small soda or, or whatever. So I, I was trying to make this clearer and I feel I've muddied it some more. Sorry. <laughs> Do you not think obesity has a correlation to where you live? I mean, I live in Hackney, and the amount of chicken and chip shops and kebab shops within a mile of my school is, are so many, literally over 10 plus. So people obviously know what they should and shouldn't eat, but it depends if they have an access to what they should and shouldn't eat. I mean, surely if you're coming out of school and you're hungry and it's so cheap and so widely available to eat junk food then shouldn't we focus on making people healthy food? Obviously, you've got like your Jamie Oliver's and whatnot, but make it more local in a sense? I think we've overcomplicated the message of eating healthily and being the right size because we've got people who are normal size thinking that they're too fat or too thin, and we've just got everybody worried about being something. And then... Um, in schools, we're um, giving the impression that you've got to eat right, eat right, eat right, eat right. What happened to exercise? Yeah, we've got free swimming membership, but there's no real, oh, we should use it. And there's no real, what do you want? Uh, what exercise clubs would you like? What exercise would you want? There's none of that. And I think if we actually ask children what they would like to do for exercise and things like that, they'll enjoy it more and there'll be less of a problem of what you eat. Thank you. There is now one minute each to um, uh, sum up and answer any questions that you would like. So um, we'll go in the same order. Jane. Okay. I guess from all of that discussion, um, I suppose my conclusion is really about the relationship between individual choice and the role of the nanny state. And that ideally, we would give autonomy and choice back to the individual and they would make healthy choices and they would eat well and they would look after themselves in all sorts of ways in the same way that they would wear seatbelts and they would not smoke. Uh, however, 
behaviour change is really, really difficult to do and people don't always do what is good for them and sometimes they do need some kinds of help. And whether that's banning smoking, having seatbelt laws or just simply making fast food outlets not clustered around schools uh, is the way forward. So some nanny state, I think, is a good thing. I think it's uh, a difficult and complicated problem and it requires uh, quite a complicated solution. There's a man called Pekka Puska who uh, is a Finnish health expert, who, uh, in, starting in North Karalia and then rolling out across the whole of Finland, um, used all sorts of interventions to improve the health of the country, uh, from lighting um, ski paths that people could use in the winter to giving people shoes, uh, older people shoes with bottoms they could walk, to improving the, reducing fat in sausages and salt in sausages, etc. Uh, since that time, in the late 70s, the average life expectancy of a Finnish male has gone up by seven years, um, which is much more than in the rest of Europe. And uh, heart disease, they've gone from being the, 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 the number one country in the world for heart disease to being down in the bottom quartile. So it is possible to do something. It is worth doing something, but it isn't going to be easy. Thank you. And Angela. Okay. Um, I think the... What the discussion showed today is, um, and, and what the panel, I think, said as well, is that it is a very complex problem. There is no easy solution, and there are no easy reasons. But I think um, there's one thing uh, which, we, which I certainly would like to think about, and this is that um, any kind of weight issues, and that includes underweight and other eating disorders as well, um, we live in a society, I think, where these treating these um, eating disorders, obesity, anorexia, will cost society money, will cost us, will cost the NHS, will cost the taxpayer. At the same, at the same time, we live in a society, in a market-driven capitalist society, that makes a lot of money by uh, selling diets, by selling calorific food to people, and I think that is where the complexity starts, and this is what makes it very difficult, and also a very much a political issue. And the idea of private choice, unfortunately, I think goes way down here, and we are much more, um, in a way, controlled by forces already, and the illusion that we are in control of our lives, something we should think about. Thank you. First of all, uh, if I have a take-home message, it is don't snatch a sandwich at 12 o'clock and then expect to go through an obesity discussion without your stomach rumbling. <laughs> I'd be putting Angelica off. <laughs> um, uh, secondly, the, 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 the fat tax thing. Well, uh, what if there was a 20% tax on unhealthy food? Right? So crisps, biscuits, whatever, would cost 20% more than, say, raw ingredients like meat, vegetables and things like that. Well, that is already the case in the UK because all those good things are VAT zero rated and all the naughty stuff is got 20% VAT on it. I did a back of a fag packet uh, discussion, um, uh, sorry, uh, calculation, and uh, that was, I reckon that was about £4 billion a year in VAT. Uh, there's no official figures, unfortunately, on that, but it's certainly in the billions of pounds of fat, uh, of VAT, uh, because of billions of, uh, <laughs> of fat as well. <laughs> Uh, I think I think that we, I think we, uh, uh, my, my general attitude to these things is that the state state intervention is not particularly helpful in these things. It actually tends to make things worse, or it, it 
acts in a very illiberal way. I think that the problem is generally overstated. Let's look at the, the specific areas where there is a genuine medical problem. Very, very fat people, people who have got type 2 diabetes. Let's look at those things and see how we can solve them by making, making a generalised claim that we are all at risk from obesity and that we are all at risk, therefore, from a number of chronic diseases related to obesity. It's just not helpful and it's just fear-mongering. Thank you. Somebody uh, uh, tweeted the other day that it's the job of the Battle of Ideas to raise more questions than it, than it answers, and I think that's, that's certainly uh, the, the case with um, uh, this session today, and uh, the whole uh, discussion of obesity and, um, uh, and food, and particularly with children, I think is not going to be one that's uh, going to go away. Uh, so uh, should we uh, thank our panel for some great contributions to that debate? <laughs>